Well, take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. And I'll begin this morning by reading our verses for us. Verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Charles Simeon was a man who went through a lot of suffering in his life. And it was all because of his faith in Christ and his preaching of the unadulterated Word of God. He had opponents, both within the church and without. When he became the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, the first 12 years of his ministry were met with opposition. In fact, he was locked out of the church by the church warden when he wanted to start a Sunday evening service because many of his parishioners that were there did not want Simeon as their pastor. He was selected to be the pastor and so they had to allow him to be there on Sunday mornings to preach. But they didn't want him preaching Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings. So they locked the doors on him. In fact, the congregation assigned the Sunday afternoon preaching to another man. That they wanted to be the preacher. And back in those days, they had sections of pews. Sections of pews with doors on them. Little boxes that people in the congregation would actually rent out. And there were doors then to get into this section of pews. And at one point, during Simeon's ministry, the congregation locked the pew doors and wouldn't let people in to sit in their seats. They didn't show up. And so they wanted to convey to Charles Simeon, you're going to be preaching to an empty congregation. To the walls, essentially. So what did Charles Simeon do? He bought chairs out of his own expense and he put them in the aisles. So that people could come in and sit down and listen to him preach on Sunday morning. But the church wardens came in and they took the chairs that he had bought, and they threw them out into the churchyard so that people couldn't come and listen to him. Charles Simeon was single his whole life, and he lived on the grounds of the University of Cambridge where he had attended King's College. For years there were students who were slandering him and spreading all kinds of rumors about him on the campus. 
Students of Cambridge didn't like Simeon because he was dedicated to biblical preaching and he took an uncompromising stand as an evangelical. The services that he was preaching at were continuously interrupted. In fact, on one occasion, a band of undergraduates there at Cambridge, some of the undergraduate students, determined to assault Simeon personally as he left the church on Sunday morning. And so they waited by the usual exit for him. The usual place where he would leave on Sunday mornings. But, providentially, that day he took a different exit. Other students students took bricks and threw them through the church windows during the worship services and during his lectures. But Charles Simeon stayed the course. There were students at Cambridge who were converted under his preaching. And they even began to be ridiculed and persecuted themselves and began being labeled as Sims. They were Sims, which became a derogatory term for these believers. One student was even denied an academic award at Cambridge because he was one of those Sims. And this continued throughout the years of his ministry. He had hardship, trials, and tribulation in his ministry. Then at the age of 47, from the age of 47 to the age of 60, he struggled with many health problems and his body became weak. Simeon believed that this was actually the Lord's discipline upon his life. That the Lord was doing this because earlier on, Simeon had made up his mind that at the age of 60, he was going to retire. So he believed that this was the Lord's discipline on his life for choosing to retire. And just before he became 60, the Lord gave him his strength back. His body was recovered. His strength was recovered. The Lord gave it back to him. And he then committed to the Lord to preaching in the pulpit for the rest of his life which he did for the next 17 years until just two months before his death. Charles Simeon had a lot of hardships and even persecution in his life. But that didn't stop him. He continued the ministry that the Lord had called him to and he stayed at Holy Trinity Church for 54 years, the entirety of his ministry. What drove Charles Simeon to keep going amidst all the troubles in his life? I'll tell you what it was. It was his theology. It was his theology. And specifically, I believe that it was his understanding of the doctrine of election. Listen to what he said about our passage before us in 1 Peter 
and the doctrine of election. Charles Simeon said this, The doctrines of election, of faith in Christ, and of the influences of the Holy Spirit are supposed by many to create discouragement. But, if duly considered, they afford the best possible antidote to despair. You see, Charles Simeon understood that God had chosen him. And that there was a purpose for God's election of him. This meant that no matter what Charles Simeon was going through, he knew that God had chosen him and that he did not need to despair, but to press on. And to press on to holiness as he lived his life for Christ. In fact, Charles Simeon said on another occasion, God has not chosen us because we were holy or because He foresaw we should become holy, but in order that we might be holy. Charles Simeon preached holiness. And he's, he was even ridiculed for preaching holiness in his sermons. In fact, at one point, a man made up pamphlets and handed them out to the public to criticize Simeon's preaching because he said, this man said, that Charles Simeon was setting too high a standard of holiness in his preaching. But as we're going to see here this morning in our passage, this is what we have been chosen for. There's a purpose to God's election of us. And we're going to see that as we continue working our way through verse 2 in 1 Peter 1. Now, over the past few Sundays, we've been looking at different aspects of our election. We saw first the earthly status of God's elect. That is that we are aliens or strangers to this earth. This earth is not our home. This is not where we belong. And then last week we saw the heavenly status of God's elect. That we are those who are chosen. Chosen of God. That we've been chosen from above. That our citizenship is above. And our future is heaven where we will be with Christ forever. Then we saw third, the divine initiative of God's elect. That we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the one who initiated our salvation and all of our salvation is of Him. And now we pick up this morning with our fourth point. Point number four that we will call the salvation of God's elect. The salvation of God's elect. Look again at the middle of verse 2 and notice what Peter says there. He says, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now oftentimes we see this word sanctification and we think about growth in the Christian life, right? And it's right to think this way 
when we see this word sanctification because that is one of the ways that the word sanctification is used. But that word sanctification means simply separation, consecration, or holiness. Another way that we could say it is to set apart. To set apart. That's what sanctification means. In fact, the Net Bible translates it this way as it says, by being set apart by the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is referring to here is the means by which God accomplishes His purpose of election. We were chosen in eternity past according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But the outworking of that choice that He made in eternity past begins at a moment of time in our lives by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There was a moment in time when you and I heard the gospel and we were saved. And at that moment of salvation, it was the Spirit of God who regenerated you and granted you the gift of repentance and faith. That all happened at a moment in time. It was the Spirit of God who did that in us. He is the one who set us apart in that moment. And because this is a work of the Spirit in our lives, we can't boast in our salvation, right? There's no boasting, as Ephesians 2.9 says. It is not our work, but it is His work. It's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Now, as I said, when we talk about sanctification, we usually only focus on the ongoing or what's called progressive sanctification in our lives. But Peter here is referring to what is called positional sanctification. Not progressive sanctification, but positional sanctification. Or that moment in time when God positionally set you apart from the world. In fact, Peter says more about positional sanctification over in chapter 2. Look at what Peter says in chapter 2 and verse 9. Notice what he says there. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has, noticed this, called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice the positional sanctification there. God called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, at salvation, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit set you apart from sin unto God. From darkness to light. From unbelief to belief. 
In fact, Paul uses sanctification to refer to positional sanctification in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. See, Paul uses washing, sanctification, and justification to refer to the same event of being saved by God. That moment in time where you were positionally set apart from this world to God. That sanctification is the moment when God saves the believer. And it was the moment that because God chose you in eternity past, at that moment of your salvation, He set you apart from the world and you now belong to Him. And think about that for a moment. God chose you in eternity past. But were you born saved? No. No one is born saved. You were born chosen, but you weren't born saved. But then, in a moment in time, you heard the gospel and you were converted. You were saved or you were sanctified. God set you apart from the world and you now belong to Him. And why did He do that? Why did God do that so that you and I would be holy and blameless before Him. In fact, Paul tells us that in Ephesians 1.4. He says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You see, sanctification doesn't end with salvation. As if I'm in Good, now I can go live my life how I want to live my life. No, you can't do that. In fact, at that moment of positional sanctification is also the beginning of progressive sanctification. Where you will continue to grow in holiness. Continue to be set apart from this world. It's the moment that the Holy Spirit makes the believer more and more holy, set apart. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The Spirit sanctified us in a moment in time, and now we are going through progressive sanctification, which will finally be completed at glorification. But until glorification comes, we are to be continually growing in holiness. For that was God's purpose of electing us in eternity past. You see, church, there are many people today who claim to be a Christian, but who show zero fruit in their life. God does not bring a person to accept some kind of title or some kind of generic spiritu spirituality in their life. 
Some people will say, I'm a Christian. Then you look at their life, and there is zero fruit. None. They may have taken some title or have joined some so-called Christian group, but that is not what real saving faith looks like. Salvation is not receiving some title and then living our lives however we want to live our lives. God doesn't choose people so that they can have heaven but then live their lives however they want to live their lives. That's not Christianity, church. In fact, there's a specific goal, a specific purpose in God's election of His people. And that leads us to our fifth point. Point number five, and what we will call the obedience of God's elect. The obedience of God's elect. Which is what Peter says back in our passage in the next line in verse 2 of chapter 1. Notice what Peter says there. He says, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. You and I were elect of God, not only to salvation, but also to obedience. The end goal was not just so that you and I would repent of our sin and trust in Christ. That was just the beginning. That was the beginning of God's work in our lives. But He saved us so that we would live our lives in obedience to Him. Now listen, church, we're not saved by our obedience, right? That's works. We're not saved by good works. We are saved unto good works. He saved us so that we would live our lives in obedience to Him. Now, we don't always obey perfectly, right? We don't. And we all get that. In fact, Paul speaks about this in Philippians 3.12 where he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He laid hold of me and now I am laying hold of all that He desires of me. And Paul says, I'm not perfect. We understand that. But the life of the one who has been elect of God and now sanctified by the Spirit is a life that is now living in a pattern of obedience to Christ. As one commentator says, obedience here conveys the picture of listening and submitting to that which is heard. It involves a change of attitude in the believer. Reversing the characteristic unsaved attitude of rebellion and self-will. That's obedience. And this obedience that Peter is talking about here is not the initial saving obedience to the gospel call. 
It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that moment that you and I obeyed when we repented of our sin and put our faith in Christ. Those are commands, right? Those are commands in Scripture. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. Commands. We responded in obedience. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. He's not talking about that moment. But the obedience that he is referring to here is the daily obedience of believers as we live our lives for Christ. It's daily obedience. Again, not perfectly, but with the desire to obey the words of Christ and a sense of brokenness and conviction and confession when we don't obey Christ's words. Another commentator says, the sign and proof of being among the elect is not an empty pratting or boasting of how secure we are once we have believed, but rather how sensitive we are to the principle and practice of obedience to the Savior we have trusted. We desire obedience and are sensitive to disobedience to our Savior, right? That's the Christian life. And the results of those who have been elect of God and sanctified by the Spirit of God is obedience to Christ. Notice what Peter says next. And be sprinkled with His blood. And be sprinkled with His blood. Now, notice that there has been a logical flow of Peter's thoughts here. There's a logical flow. We've been working our way through this, right? A logical flow to Peter's thoughts. You are aliens here on earth. Why? Well, because you were chosen in eternity past, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who, by the Spirit, sanctified you or saved you. For what purpose? To obey Jesus Christ. You see the flow of thought there? That's the logical flow of thought. But notice what Peter says right after that. And be sprinkled with his blood. Now, oftentimes when we think about his blood, we think about the cross and salvation, right? We think of initial salvation, of being bought with his blood, as Acts 20, 28 says. Or of being justified by His blood, as Romans 5, 9 says. We think of initial salvation. But, Peter has already told us about our initial salvation when he said, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, right? He already told us about our initial salvation. So what does Peter mean, and be sprinkled with His blood? What does he mean by this? Well, to understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Take your Bibles and turn over to Exodus 24. Exodus chapter 24. See, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are three times that speaks about being sprinkled with blood. Blood. 
There is the consecration of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood in Exodus 29 where they were sprinkled with blood. Then there's the cleansing of leprosy in Leviticus 14 where the leper was sprinkled with blood and cleansed. And then we also see sprinkling of blood here in Exodus 24. Now what's happening here in Exodus 24? Well, the Israelites had been led out of Egypt by Moses and they're now camped at Mount Sinai. Moses has received the law from God. The Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20. We see those. And he's received the law from God on that mountain. Notice then what it says in Exodus 24 beginning in verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to, to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and will and we will be, what? Obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, Moses has just returned from Mount Sinai and then he recounts to the Israelites God's law. He says, this is what God spoke to me to give to you. He acts as a mediator between the people and God. And he gives them God's law. And how do the people respond? Verse 3, look at what they say there. All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Now, notice they understood that this is not the words of Moses. It's not the words of Moses, but this is God's word. All the words which the Lord has spoken. They understand, this is God's word that you're speaking to us, Moses. And all the words which you've spoken, that the Lord has spoken through you, we will do. And they respond with pronouncing obedience to God's word. And this here begins a covenant that will be made between God and the Israelites. Moses then rises early in the morning and he builds an altar to seal this covenant between God and the Israelites. And they come and they make sacrifices to the Lord. Moses then takes the blood of the sacrifices and he puts half of it in basins and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then Moses takes the book of the covenant 
the words that Moses had said to the Israelites the day before, and he had written them down that night, and he reads that again to the people. A second time. He tells them the word of God. He reads God's word to them. And how do they respond? Look at verse 7. Notice what they say there. All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Then Moses took the blood from the basins he had set aside, and he sprinkles the people with the blood. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us about this event over in Hebrews 9.19 where he says this, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And what does this do? When they're sprinkled with the blood, what does this do? It seals the promise. It seals the promise. It seals the covenant. Now there is a covenant that has been made. Blood has been sprinkled on the altar. Blood has been sprinkled on the people. There is a sacrifice that has been made. There is a covenant now that has been sealed with the blood. And what is the covenant here? The covenant is an agreement that God is faithful to reveal His law and the people say, we will obey it. John MacArthur says, the blood splattered on the altar represented God's agreement to reveal His law and the blood sprinkled on the people signified their consent to obey. We will obey this. They made a promise. They made a covenant with God that day through a sacrifice that they would obey God. God would do His part. Is God always faithful to fulfill His covenants? Always. Right? God would do His part. And the Israelites are saying, we're doing our part. We will do our part by doing what? By obeying your word, God. Now, stay with me here as I I help us to understand this. You see, the author of Hebrews also tells us in Hebrews 9.15 that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, right? Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And what was involved in that new covenant? Well, in Exodus 24, under the old covenant with Israel, it was God's faithfulness to reveal His word to His people, right? But in the new covenant, it is God's faithfulness to forgive our sins. That's the promise of the new covenant. In fact, listen to 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. All. That's the promise and the new covenant. That all of our sin is forgiven. 
The death of Christ, His blood was shed for us so that we could have our sins forgiven and have eternal life. In fact, notice down in verse 8 of Exodus 24. Look at what Moses says there in verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What does Moses call it? The blood of the covenant. Moses says this is the blood of the covenant. Listen to what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed when he instituted communion with his disciples. He said this in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. What was Jesus doing on that night? He's referencing Exodus 24 in verse 8. The blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. And that covenant there was God saying, I will reveal my law to you and you're making a covenant to be obedient to me. But in the new covenant, I am making a promise that I will forgive all of your sins. Something that the blood of the bulls and the goats couldn't do, right? But my son, his sacrifice, cleanse you from all of your sin. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. And what does his blood do? It forgives our sins. You see, God's part in the new covenant is to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sins and to give us His Holy Spirit, right? It's the day of Pentecost. All of His elect are forgiven their sins and this means that all of His elect are secure in Him. We can't lose our salvation. Because it wasn't of us in the first place, right? It was of Him. He chose us. He saved us. And He will keep us because He has promised that our sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. All sins are forgiven in Christ. But, in the new covenant, is not just the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to us by Christ, but in that new covenant is also our promise to obey Christ. In the new covenant, God not only forgives our sins, but He also gives us His Spirit so that we can walk in His statutes, which is the promise of the new covenant all the way back in Ezekiel, right? In Ezekiel 36, 27, God says, I will give you my spirit so that you can walk in my statutes. That's the new covenant. That's something that the Israelites in the old covenant didn't have. They didn't have the spirit of God living in them. But as new covenant believers, we do. Our sins have been forgiven and we have been given the Spirit of God to live within us so that we now have the power to be obedient to the words of Christ. 
And how do we do that? We walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh so that you fulfill its desires. Walk in the Spirit. And what will you do? Be walking in obedience. In obedience. And in that new covenant, God promises to forgive us our sins. But our promise in the new covenant is, and I will obey your word, Lord. That's the new covenant. And that is what Peter is getting at here in our passage. Where he says to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. You see, he's not referring to initial salvation there when he says, be sprinkled with his blood. Peter was a Jew. Where does Peter's mind go? Right back to Exodus 24. That covenant that was made there between God and Israel where Israel says, and we will obey. And Peter is saying here, in the new covenant, yes, God forgives you your sins, but you also are making a covenant to obey him. Because that's what you have been chosen to do. You were elect of God in eternity past. Chosen by Him. So that He would sanctify you by His Spirit. Set you apart so that you would do what? Obey Him. And when you entered into that new covenant, you made a promise. I will obey Christ. When you were saved, you said, I will follow Christ. Isn't that the command that Jesus gives? Follow me. That's the command. And how do we respond? Yes, Lord. Yes, Master. I will follow you. We enter into that covenant. And as believers, that's what we have been called to do. And that should be our life. To be a life lived in obedience to Christ. In fact, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter continues to touch on this obedience through chapter 1. And notice what he says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 14. 1 Peter 1.14, he says there, as obedient children. Or another way that we could say that phrase there is children of obedience. As children of obedience. In fact, the NAS has it footnoted that way. As children of obedience. That's what, that's what Peter is saying there. And what Peter is saying here is that obedience is what characterizes the true believer. That's what characterizes us. People should look at our lives and say, those are obedient people. They obey their master. It means as those who are chosen and redeemed of God, we are no longer sons of disobedience, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.2, but we are children of obedience. Because we've been chosen. To do what? To obey. To obey. You see, you can't say, I'm a Christian, but I want to live my life however I want to live it. Can't say that. That's not the new covenant. That's not what a true Christian is. 
Zai Howard Marshall says, he says, our acceptance by faith of Christ's death as an atoning sacrifice for us means that we are bound to Him and will express this fact by obeying His commands. We express that through obedience to Him because that's what we have been saved for. Obedience is the heart of true salvation. It is not only the first act in the believer's life by repenting and putting our faith in Christ, but it is the permanent characteristic of true faith. Again, not perfectly, right? We understand that. That's why we praise God for His promise of forgiving us our sins, right? Because we're not going to live perfectly. We are going to sin. But what does God promise in the new covenant? Forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And we rejoice. And we, we praise Him for the new covenant. And as believers, as those who have been called of God and have been saved of God, we desire to obey Christ. As those who have been saved, chosen by God in eternity past, we have been saved for a purpose. To obey Christ. And Peter wants to remind these persecuted believers of this fact. Yeah, you're going through persecution. I know. I get it. But remember what you have been saved to. To obey your Master. To obey your Savior. That's what you have been called to do. So don't give up. Keep going. Keep obeying Because that's why He chose you in eternity past. They've been chosen by God the Father. They've been saved by the Spirit through the blood of the Son for the purpose of obeying the Son. And notice what Peter puts on display for us here. The Trinity. See that there? There's the Trinity. The glorious work of the Trinity. We're chosen by the Father in eternity past. We were sanctified by the Spirit when we heard the message of Christ's death for sinners like us, and now we have been saved to obey Christ. Hence the command of Christ, follow me. Follow me. We've been called to obey. We've been chosen to obey. And so we've seen so far the earthly status, the heavenly status, the divine initiative, the salvation, the obedience of God's elect, and finally now, point number six, the blessings of God's elect. Look back at the end of verse 2 with me in 1 Peter 1. Notice what Peter says there. The end of verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Notice first that Peter says, Grace. Grace. What have all of us as God's elect received from him? Grace. We've all received grace. We've received the free, unmerited favor of God upon our lives as lost sinners. 
We didn't deserve it. We did nothing to receive salvation and God's grace. But He gave it to us. And we received it. We were once lost, but He found us. And He showed us amazing grace in our lives. Right? And because of that grace, we have received peace. Because of the grace that we have received from God, we have now received peace. As one commentator says, peace is the result of receiving the grace of God. It denotes the state of well-being that flows from the experience of being reconciled and forgiven. You see, before we received God's grace, we were enemies of God. Every one of us was an enemy of God. We lived our lives fulfilling our own desires, our own flesh. In rebellion against a holy and righteous God. And every one of us before our salvation were His enemies. In fact, Paul reminds us of this in Romans 5 where he says that we were helpless, that we were sinners, and that we were enemies of God. As all unbelievers are. All unbelievers are enemies of God. And that was us. But we now have peace with God because He saved us by His grace. We're no longer enemies, we are sons and daughters of God Almighty. We now have peace with Him. We have the free gift of eternal life. And that happened because of the work of God in our hearts. He regenerated our hearts. He took our dead hearts and made them alive. And we responded by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ who died on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day to be that sacrifice for our sin, a sacrifice that none of us could make. And if you're here this morning and you have not done that, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, I urge you, come to Christ today. Beg for His grace. Call out for God's grace to save you. And He will hear you. And He will save you. And you can have peace with Him. You see, we have peace with God as those who are believers because He saved us by His grace. And Peter wants his readers to understand this. He wants them to understand this. And so he wishes for them to have these gifts in greater measure. And what's amazing here is this word, fullest measure. Notice that at the end of verse 2. Fullest measure. In the Greek, it's a passive verb. What does that mean? It means it's something that comes from without. It's something that they don't produce themselves, but it's something that comes from another. The grace and the peace, may it be yours in the fullest measure. Oh, but by the way, you can't produce this grace and you can't produce this peace. It must come from someone else. Who does it come from? It comes from God comes from Him. 
And because Peter wishes for them to have this in greater measure, what does this imply? It implies they already have it, right? But may you have it in fuller measure, in fullest measure, abounding even more. May you realize and experience and understand the grace of God in your life and the peace of God in your life even more as you go through trials and tribulation and trouble. They already have it. As God's elect, they have received grace and peace. But He wants them to have more of it as they go through trials and tribulation in their lives. In closing, as we've looked at this glorious, great doctrine of election, I don't want you to forget who Peter is writing to. Don't forget this. He's writing to believers who are going through great trials and tribulations. They are suffering for Christ's name. But it's this great doctrine of election that Peter knows will comfort them and challenge them to keep living for Christ during their stay here on earth. It's this great doctrine that will strengthen them and will also humble them. This is a humbling doctrine, isn't it? Because I did nothing to earn it, to deserve it. In fact, all that I deserve is hell for all of eternity, separated from God. But God chose me. God elect me. God chose you, church. It's humbling. You belong to Him. And because you belong to Him, He will strengthen you and He will care for you because you are not your own, but you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that should humble us. We aren't saved because of our good works. None of us are good, no, not one. But we are saved by God's grace and now we have peace with Him. So how should you and I live our lives in response to this grace by living in obedience to our Savior. No matter how hard life is, no matter what the trials and the tribulations are that you're going through, remember that you have been chosen of God to obey Him. To the obedience of Christ. May we be impacted by this great doctrine and be strengthened and humbled and motivated to live our lives in obedience to Christ, the purpose for which you and I were chosen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these comforting words and yet at the same time challenging words. challenges us and motivates us and encourages us to live our lives in obedience to our Lord and Master, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that does not know Christ as Lord and Master. Father, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith and that they would come to you crying out for your grace, for your mercy to save them. And Lord, we thank you 
that you're a God who answers that prayer and that you are a God who saves the lost. Such was every one of us here in this room. We were all lost, but we thank you that you have found us and that you have saved us by your grace and that we have peace with you as we are no longer enemies, but we are your children. Father, may that motivate us to live our lives in obedience to you, for that is why you elected us, why you chose us in eternity past. And may you receive all the glory and the honor and the praise for it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.